And they come desperately to the Lord as well, seeking His help. And our story will demonstrate that Christ is fully able to rescue the desperate, to come to the need of the desperate. He's fully able. And we are to have full confidence ourselves today to come to Him much the same way as the two characters in this story. So as we get ready to hear God's Word and to jump into this story, let's pray and seek the Lord. Lord, we just thank You. Lord, that You not only love the two people in this story so much to intervene in their lives, but You also love us. And You have given us Your Word and preserved what You did, not just to be a cool story, but to actually speak to us today. And so, Lord, that's what we ask. We ask You to do the miraculous, Lord, that You would take words on a page and take a man, a weak and sinful man even, and take people who are so limited and and sinful themselves and actually do something miraculous. Speak to us and encounter us with Your holy, living, wonderful presence. So we ask You, Lord, to do just this. We know it's Your will. We see it in Your Word. And we ask You to to use me and to use us that we would hear You and that You would speak, O God. And we would be drawn to You. We would be changed by You. And love You more. Love others more for Your glory. So we ask this and we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 40 in chapter 8. Jesus has been going about the region of Capernaum, Galilee, and doing many miracles and teaching the truth. And He has quite a following. He's taken a little bit of an excursion away from there. He's just come back. And we pick up in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for Him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, He implored Him to come to His house. For He had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around Him, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Him and touched the fringe of His garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched Me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go. In peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise! And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. 
story of Jesus healing a woman and Jairus' daughter. Let's take some time to go through the story, to enter into the story ourselves, and then to learn some lessons from our Savior as a result. Christ has just returned across the lake. They had been ministering in this town of Capernaum for quite some time, and many of the miracles that you read about in Luke and in the Gospels take place right in Capernaum. So it's kind of the base of their operations. It's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of stuff happening. Uh, it seems that the paralytic was healed, I think in the book of Mark it says, was in Capernaum. We heard about the paralytic. Uh, there was a man with a withered hand, a demonized man. As a matter of fact, Jesus, after healing Peter's mother-in-law, stayed up all night long. And people were just lining up to be prayed for and, and healed in Capernaum. So there's been a lot going on in Capernaum. This is a town that's north of Jerusalem. It's kind of in the sticks a little bit. A fishing village and Jesus has been ministering there for a while, but he took an excursion with his disciples across the lake in a boat. And in that boat, if you know the story, a storm came up, a raging storm came up, and his disciples feared for their lives. Jesus was actually asleep in the boat, and a raging storm comes up, and they feared for their lives, thinking, oh no, we're going to die. And Jesus wakes up, says, you have little faith, and speaks to the storm with a word, calms the waves, calms the wind. And the, the sea is calm. And then they go on from there and, and they land on the other side and they meet a, not a raging storm, but a raging man, a demonized man. And, and no one can deal with this guy. He's, he's uncontrollable. There's a legion of demons that are in him and, and he's going around doing crazy things and Jesus goes up and basically delivers him from the demons, speaks a word, and the demons come out and go in a herd of pigs. And, and the man is so grateful to be delivered from all these demons. But the town isn't too happy about what happened. They're actually very intimidated by Jesus and His disciples. And so they ask Him, would would you please leave? Would you leave our area? And so they get in the boat and they leave. And they go back across the lake. And that's where our story picks up. In Capernaum, they welcome Him. They're glad to see Jesus. They're glad to welcome Him back. And a crowd greets Him. It says later in the passage that the crowd pressed in on Him. This was a large crowd. Basically, probably the way it happened is they started to come back on the lake and probably someone spotted the boat and recognized Peter's boat or something and said, here they come. And people started to gather again. And by the time they got there, there was a large crowd probably filling up the whole shoreline, the whole area there, the whole harbor front. It's a large crowd and they're, they're greeting Him. It's interesting in, in the Gospels, there's a lot about the crowd. There's a lot of talk about the crowd. And the crowd at times loves Jesus and is very glad to see Him. And in this case, that's, that's how it is. They're glad to see Him. They welcome Him. They want Him back. The thing is, the crowd's kind of fickle. The crowd really doesn't know who Jesus is, really doesn't know what to do with Him. And, and so, at one point, they're happy with Him. And when He's healing and, and doing miracles for their benefit, they're happy. But later on, we know the crowd in Jerusalem yells, crucify Him. Crucify Him. The crowd is is fickle. The crowd goes back and forth. One point, being glad and welcoming Him and later, condemning Him to, to death on the cross. It's kind of a side point, but I thought it was just worth mentioning this whole reality of the crowd because I think it has relevance for us as a church. You see, the temptation is to despise the crowd, to think, who wants a fickle group? Who wants people who don't know what they want and who will reject Jesus? Well, the Lord seems to have wanted the crowd. He ministered to the crowd. Because in the crowd, though there may be many who are fickle, though there may be many who, who will change their mind, will go from loving what Christ is about to hating it, there are those in the crowd that will become the committed who will be affected by the Gospel, who will be touched by the Lord and will be changed from a member of the crowd to a member of the congregation of God's people. And so he didn't despise the crowd. He ministered to the crowd. And for us as a church, we're to do the same. We are not to despise the crowd and think, you know, we just don't want to have a lot to do with what's going on in our culture. Rather, we want to engage the crowd. We want to relate to the crowd. We want to be a place that even welcomes the crowd to come here even on a Sunday morning. 
Because in that crowd, there are many people the Lord has His eye on. He wants to draw to Himself to make them part of the committed, make them part of the congregation of God's people. So may we welcome the crowd and be used of God to see those in the crowd come to know Him. So there's this crowd. And they're pressing in on Him all around. And out of the crowd comes this man, Jairus. And what does he do? He comes out of the crowd. He falls at Jesus' feet. He probably gets down on his knees at his feet in a very humble position. Well, why is that unique? Well, Jairus is the elder, the, the ruler of the synagogue. That synagogue in Capernaum, which is the place where they met to worship as the people of God, as the Jewish people of God. They met in that synagogue. And, and Jairus is basically the, in charge of the synagogue. He was an elder in the town, an important person. He probably determined what the worship time was going to be like for the synagogue. Who was going to speak? He also would have been the guy that was in charge of taking care of the building, making sure it was taken care of and kept in order. He's an important person. And we learn later on that the elders in Jerusalem said to the whole country, said, anybody who welcomes Jesus is to be put out of the synagogue. If you think that Jesus is anybody worth hearing, you are going to be put out of the synagogue. So here we have Jairus with that sort of context coming to Jesus. He's risking quite a bit to come to Jesus and humble himself before Jesus. He's an important person. But we also know that he had seen a whole lot of stuff going on, hadn't he? He had been in that synagogue. Jesus had taught in that synagogue. Jesus had delivered a man from demonic oppression in that synagogue. In the town, there had been much healing that had gone on. So, so this man, Jairus, had witnessed a lot. And he had a lot of reason to believe that this perhaps is more than just another teacher. Maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the promised King. Maybe this is the prophet of prophets. And so he knows that Jesus is more, I think, than that. But there's also something else driving Jairus. And maybe something that, that didn't drive him in the beginning. Maybe he heard Jesus and was somewhat interested, but just didn't feel a real need to risk his job and his reputation on this itinerant rabbi, this somewhat crazy man in the eyes of the establishment. But something had gone on in his life to drive him. It says in the text, his only daughter... Twelve years of age, lay dying. Probably his only child, he and his wife, their only child. Twelve years old. She's dying. The, this child who I imagine was the delight of the home and the hope of the future for the family. Probably their greatest treasure. This young girl, twelve years old, just on the verge of womanhood, is dying. She's at the point of death. Probably was fairly sudden sickness that she got. So she hadn't been at the point of death before, it doesn't seem. Jairus would have been around Jesus and there's no mention of him coming to Jesus before. So we think it looks like that it was a sudden death. But I also think there's something else going on. The urgency was not there for Jairus before. And he perhaps waited to the very end to go to Jesus because of the risk. But at this point, he is a desperate man. He is desperate. His only daughter is laying back home in bed, dying. And he's desperate. And he's ready to sacrifice and risk his reputation and do whatever it takes to get help from Jesus. You know, God often will press us in situations and will press people with situations and circumstances to do just what he was doing in Jairus' life. He will use hard circumstances to get us desperate enough to come on our knees before Jesus and say, would you please help me? And that's true for an unbeliever or a believer. God designs circumstances to make us realize how desperate we are and to bring us to that same place. And there's something about a child being sick that is particularly hard to deal with. 
that particularly makes us feel helpless and drives us to seek the Lord. I haven't seen too much, nothing like Jairus' situation, but I can remember when we were a young family and Daniel had a severe case of croup. Croup is that infection, kind of like you get like an asthma type situation. It's in the upper respiratory, the throat area. And usually not that serious, but this case was pretty serious. And, and I can remember him struggling to breathe. And I think he was sleeping with us because we wanted to monitor his breathing. And he started to struggle to breathe. And, and, and it was getting harder and harder and harder for him to breathe. And we were told you know, to put him in the shower and use the steam. And so we had him in the shower, the steam running, and, and it wasn't helping. And I remember the desperation as I took him out of the shower and it was in the wintertime, and I had him hanging out the window in the cold air, hoping that would help, and nothing helped. And just to be in that place of, what can I do? There's nothing I can do. There's nothing here I could do. And, and we, we prayed and cried out to God and thanked God in that situation. We, we actually had to rush him to the hospital because it wasn't working. We got him in the car, rushed him to the children's hospital. We lived probably about five miles from there. And on the way over, actually, his breathing got better. You know, being okay. But I know a little bit of what it feels like to have a situation like this. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe even today you're in that place. Like Jairus. You've got someone you love. Perhaps a child who is in a desperate place. The Savior comes to deliver. The Savior comes to rescue. The Savior comes to intervene. And that's what He does for Jairus. He starts to go to the house, starts to walk towards his house to, to help out. He's more than willing to come and visit Jairus, even though Jairus has had a last-minute, apparently a last-minute conversion. The Savior's willing to come and visit. And so he starts to walk to the house with Jairus and the whole crowd, and they're all pressing in on him. The word press there that's in your English Bible is the same word that's used for like a grape press, a wine press. So the people are just like crammed in. Uh, it's, it's difficult probably to walk. There's people everywhere. And there's someone in that crowd that is there. In the midst of a crowd is this woman. So as Jesus went, it says, the, the people pressed around Him and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. There's a woman in the crowd and she has not a sudden condition like Jairus' daughter, but a chronic condition. Jairus' daughter had known probably 12 years of, of health. Jairus and his wife had known 12 years of joy with their child. And now there was a sudden condition after 12 years. For all those 12 years, this woman has known chronic problems. Chronic suffering. Matter of fact, it says she had spent everything on the physicians trying to get help. She had spent her life savings trying to get help for this chronic bleeding. Probably some sort of uterine hemorrhaging that she had. And the thing about this affliction that she had, it wasn't just a health matter. It wasn't just a health matter. For according to Jewish law, if you had a discharge of blood, you were ceremonially unclean. Which meant that you could not have fellowship with other people. Because if you touched them or they touched you, they were ceremonially unclean and could not worship and had to go through a time of cleansing and so forth. So this woman's sickness not only was a physical affliction and, and affected her physically and probably felt weak and anemic and, and so forth, but also there was a social affliction. And probably with that, an emotional and spiritual affliction. Because of this sickness, this chronic sickness, she was probably isolated from others and broken and desperate. Probably pretty much hopeless. But there's something else going on. In her place, 12 years dealing with this pain, there was faith. She had a serious condition, a chronic condition. You know, there are those who have sudden conditions and there are those who have chronic conditions. 
God wants to minister to both. This story is for both. And sometimes we read the story. I don't know about you, but I do it. I'll read through the story and I just will not connect often with the reality that there's people all around us in one of these two conditions. And a matter of fact, if we live long enough, we are going to be in one of these two conditions or someone very close to us. That's the reality of existence in this world, in this broken world. Is we will be in this place. And these conditions can be very difficult, particularly the chronic one. I know for, for us, for me, watching, watching Peg's dad, Bob, go through seven years of a condition called Lewy body syndrome, which is kind of halfway between Alzheimer's, so loss of the memory and, and short-term speech and so forth, memory. And it's a combination of that and Parkinson's. is actually physical things. He went through this disease for seven years. And watching him deal with it, the day-in, day-out trial, and it didn't just affect him. Certainly it affected him seriously, but it also affected the whole family. And these sort of chronic sicknesses have that characteristic. They don't just affect the person. They affect all those around them. And there's different levels of it. Some of it is... Some of these chronic syndromes are serious, like Lewy body syndrome, and Bob eventually passed on to be with the Lord after seven years. But others are less serious, but still significant. There's a whole range from things like regular headaches to degenerative diseases, chronic conditions. And this woman was one with such a condition. And there's loads of people all around us in the same place. So there's a message here from God's Word for them and for us as their friends and family. You see, she came to Jesus in that desperate place and there was faith in her. She had faith in Jesus. And, and I don't think the focus of the story is on how much faith this woman had. The focus of the story is on the Savior who is worthy of such faith. The focus of the New Testament and the whole Scripture is on God who is worthy of faith. So I don't want us to come away from this story thinking, my need is to have more faith. No, that's not the right approach. My need is to see that this Savior is worthy of my faith. And so this woman had seen Jesus in operation apparently and, and, and believed that He was more, more than just a regular teacher. That He was the Messiah. He was the Deliverer, the promised Deliverer and the Prophet of Prophets. And she says to herself, actually in the parallel account, I think in, in Mark, it says, if I could just touch His garment, I'll be healed. She knew that this Savior, this Christ, was God's chosen One, sent by God. And if I could just touch His garment, if I could just reach out in this press of people, I may not be able to get near Him, but if I can just touch His garment, I'll be healed. And so she had faith in Christ and she wanted just to touch Him and, and she ends up doing that the, the, to kind of fill in what's going on too with the dress so we understand what it would have looked like. In those days, they would wear basically a single linen garment down to their ankles. They'd wear a belt around at some point of that. Uh, it's not clear, but it, it looks like they would wear something on their head. Men and women alike would cover their heads maybe in a turban or a hood. And rabbis and teachers, and, and I think many of the men, would wear another robe over that. That would go over and in four corners would have these long tassels that went out. It was a reminder of the Word of God, the commands of God. And so Jesus, as He's going through this crowd, He has this robe on probably with the tassels hanging off. And the woman says, if I could just touch that tassel of the Savior, I'll be healed. And so she reaches out. She reaches out amidst that crowd and she touches that tassel believing that she can heal, that Jesus can heal her and immediately experiences healing. Immediately something's different. It doesn't say what. It doesn't say in detail. But all it says is that she knows that she was immediately healed. She immediately experienced a difference. Maybe it was warmth flowing through her body or some feeling of electrical something or just a sense of a well body. We know what it feels like to feel well versus feel sick. And suddenly she felt well. She was healed immediately. And one of the reasons she might want to have just touched His garment and not gone to Him personally was her disease, her sickness. Because there's the whole idea of being ceremonially unclean 
and it's an embarrassing condition. So she wanted to remain anonymous, but even in her anonymity, she was trusting Christ to heal her and reached out and touched the garment and she was immediately healed. And the Savior says, Who touched me? And Peter says, always the first to speak, What are you talking about? Who touched you? There's people all around you touching you. The crowd's pressing in. What do you mean? Who touched me? That's my paraphrase. Maybe it wasn't quite like that, but he, what was going on? And Jesus said, I know the power went out from me. I sense the Spirit of God flowing through me to someone. Now, I don't think he said all that for his own benefit. I don't think he was confused. He's the prophet of prophets. And if the prophet Elijah could know all those things you read about him knowing, then certainly the prophet of prophets, Christ, knew exactly what was going on. He didn't say it for his own sake. I believe he said it for her sake and the crowd's sake. And I think it teaches us something about the Lord. See, I don't think the Lord wants to be treated as kind of like a battery you go to get charged up. He doesn't want to be treated as a, as a bit of medicine we go to and pop a pill to feel better. He doesn't want this woman just to come to be healed physically, though He does. He wants more. He wants a relationship with her. He wants her to know Him personally. He wants her to experience His kind words and His presence. And God is still a God who heals today. But He does not want to do that without us knowing Him. And so He relates to this woman. He says, who touched Me? So that she would know who healed her. I have seen people, one person in particular I know, who God healed. This person didn't know Christ. And, and, and uh, I prayed with someone else for her. She had a serious condition. God touched her and healed her. She was healed of the, the particular condition. But it wasn't followed up with a relationship with Christ, though that was presented. There was no follow-up. And now, years later, having experienced this significant healing and, and there were good things that flowed from that, that person now looks back and chalks that up to the power of positive thinking. What went on there when they prayed for me was, was just positive thinking flowing from them. And, and I engaged in that and my body healed itself. That's what happens when we don't understand that there is a healer behind the healing. There is a God who wants relationship. And, and the mistake we make is we come to God we say, God, help me. Deliver me from this situation. Heal me, please. Help me with my financial problems. Help me with this, please. And we don't necessarily want a relationship with Him. And He says, I want to know you. I want a relationship. I want you to come to Me as Savior, not just for this sickness, but everything. And Lord, for all of life, I want you to follow Me. And so he says to the woman in the crowd, who touched me? And she comes forward. She's intimidated, I think. Embarrassed. It says that she comes trembling before Jesus. And Jesus does not rebuke her for touching Him, though she is ceremonially unclean. He instead commends her. She comes forward and she, she tells everything, actually. She says, this is what happened. She comes before Jesus, I think, comes to His feet, falling down before Him, and declares in His presence all that had happened. Tells the whole story. This is what was going on, and this is what happened. And Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He points to her faith. And in the book of Luke, speaks much about faith. But again, the object is not to have strong faith, but to see the Savior and believe in Him. Daryl Bach in his commentary on the section says, Faith believes God's capability to deliver through Jesus. Faith believes God's capability to deliver through Jesus. Faith believes that God can do what He wants to do through Jesus. Faith sees Jesus for who He is. It doesn't see Jesus perfectly or fully, but it does see Him. And it sees Him for, for who He is and believes that He can do what He's promised to do. And that's what this woman does. There's no magic here, Darrell Bach says. Only belief 
in the spiritual action and power of the Almighty God. And this woman walks away blessed by Jesus. He says, go in peace. And that word for peace in the Scriptures means more than just kind of feeling good. It's the blessing. It's the favor. It's the, it's the shalom of God. Go, being reconciled to God. Having your sins forgiven. Go, being healed. Walking with God. That's what He says to her. She goes away blessed and her life transformed. No longer desperate in the same way. Changed by her encounter with Christ. Meanwhile, Jairus is there the whole time watching this interaction. And I don't know about you, but if I were Jairus, I'd be like, okay, alright, get it, get it done, you know, get the healing, let's go, we got my daughter back home. Probably wanting, you know, come on, come on, she's near death. Frantic even, I imagine. And just as Jesus is finishing her, his conversation with this woman in the crowd, people come up. Someone from her, his house comes and says, your daughter is dead. And I'm sure his heart sunk to his feet. And then, really a stinging rebuke in some ways beyond that, don't bother the teacher anymore. I don't know about you, but I would not receive that real well. Don't tell me not to bother the teacher. I'm going to give you some trouble yourself. He's heartbroken at that point. His daughter is dead. And I'm sure he was experiencing maybe what we would experience. There could be any sort of reaction. Many men, I think, would just even collapse with grief at that point. My daughter, my only daughter, dead. Maybe he would rage. Maybe with some of us, that would be what we would do. Why? And rage. Maybe he just sat there in stunned silence. Quiet despair. My daughter. My only daughter is dead. And then our Savior hears what's said and speaks to him and says, Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Only believe. Do not fear. Only believe. And she will be well. Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. He speaks promise to her, to him. He speaks truth to him. He calls him to believe because he knows who he is. And he knows he's Lord of all things. And he knows he can do whatever the Father tells him to do. Whatever he wills to do, he can and will do. And so he calls Jairus to adjust his perspective on reality. To adjust his perspective on reality from thinking reality is defined by the circumstances around me and the normal course of life. To adjust his perspective on reality and remember that he's standing before the Savior Himself. And things are different. And we do not need to fear. Only believe. And these words are for us too. Do not fear. Only believe. For Christ who walked In Capernaum, with Jairus and this woman, is still alive. He he has been raised from the dead. He rules from heaven. And He's still acting and operating in the earth. And if you are a believer, if you have turned from your sin to trust in Him, He is here for you. And if you're not a believer, He's here for you too. Do not fear. Only believe. He is sovereign over all things. And so your situation may not be a sick daughter, though it might be a sick child. There is something perhaps that you are dealing with that makes you equally desperate. And His call to you and to me is not to let circumstances, not to let the doctor's diagnosis, not to let what the culture says about your situation define your situation, but to recognize there's a greater reality above and beyond it. God, the Sovereign One, who is in control and who chooses to act in many different ways and He can heal the child. 
He can work in this life or He can use that sickness for good. Do not fear. Believe. Don't let your doubts rule. Recognize that the Savior has been raised victorious over sin and death and sits at the right hand of God now, reigning and ruling. He's real and in control. Do not fear. Believe. Maybe it's not a sick child. Maybe it's a wayward child that you have. Do not fear. Believe. Maybe it's not broken dreams of a life that's lost, but broken dreams in some other way that a life that could have been for you. Do not fear. Believe. Maybe it's not that your daughter is dead, but your future, as far as you're concerned, is dead. Do not fear. Believe. He is fully able to deliver and fully able to accomplish His perfect plan. He is in control. He's sovereign. And He's near. He's the same Savior as you see in the book. And this story is here for you. That you might not fear, but believe. And that was His word to Jairus that morning. And so they proceed to the house. Jairus, I would believe, is bolstered by Christ's call and the power that I think would have been with that. And they go to the house. And they walk into the house. And perhaps he met his wife at that point. Peter, James, and John proceed into the room. But before they get there, there's a crowd there. The whole neighborhood, probably. Extended family. And they're mourning. And these guys knew how to do mourning. There's people weeping, people crying, people playing mournful instruments. And that day, from what I remember, they had professional mourners. That was their job. They were really good at crying and mourning. And they would come to your house and cry with you. So those folks are there. and It's quite a scene. They're mourning this dead child. And Jesus says, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And the crowd, again, goes from mourning to laughing. Like that. And they laugh. What are you talking about? Their reality is defined by the normal course of things. And so when Jesus says she's sleeping, not dead, they respond by laughter. It reminds me of Sarah when God said to her, we're going to be back in a year and you're going to have a child. She's very old at this point. What did she do? She laughed. Laughed? A child? What? My age? And they ended up naming the child. She laughs. Isaac. She laughs. And we at times laugh at what God promises, but may we not laugh? For if it isn't a healing from a sickness here for us, there is a healing in store. There's a promise that we will sleep and then one day we will get new bodies. He will heal us one way or the other. Our ultimate healing is not in this life. Our ultimate healing is on the day He returns and we receive new bodies. We're going to be new. We are made for eternity with Him. That's our destination. And He has promised that. May we not laugh when we hear that word. Sometimes we can do that thinking, yeah, right. It's truth. It's the promise. And we need to live on that promise. There will be a day when this body will be healed. There's a better healing than just a temporary healing for us. There's a permanent healing coming when Christ's return. He promises that. We have to believe Him. These guys laugh at this point. But He proceeds in. And He goes in to the girl, this 12-year-old girl, and He takes her by the hand. Probably a, a cold hand at this point. Takes her by the hand. Tenderly, graciously, takes her by the hand. And then calls out loudly, little girl, Talitha Kumi, little girl, child, or sweetheart, get up. And she gets up. And can you imagine what it would have been like to be there and to be the folks or be Peter, John, or James and, and to watch it? And I'm sure, I mean, her mom's probably just burst out in tears. Her dad's probably just stood there shocked, silence, grabbed his, hugged his daughter. I mean, it was just incredible. She gets up, it says, and Jesus, I'm sure, just kind of, full of joy, smile on his face, says, why don't you get her something to eat? 
And there's joy there. He comes and He delivers the desperate. And then He says something that's interesting. So she's healed. It's, a, it's an incredible miracle. I mean, and the town's going to know about it. This is an opportunity to, to tell everybody about Christ. This is an opportunity to testify. This is the Messiah. He raises the dead. Everybody, let's look what happened. I mean, in nowadays the parents would book time with Larry King Live and get her on Larry King Live and get her on the, the morning shows, Good Morning America and all that. You know, mom and dad and daughter to tell their story. You know, this Jesus, He's really something. But Jesus isn't interested in any of that. He says, don't tell anybody what just happened. Why do you think the Savior would say, don't tell anybody what just happened? Well, I believe, and the commentators believe too, that Jesus looked at healing and looked at His ministry of healing differently than we may look at it. He is a Savior who loves to bring healing. And for that, that friend of mine who was healed and never, later on thought it was positive thinking, God still delighted to heal her. He's like that, but He wants more. He looks at healing different than just getting your body back. He wants followers. He wants people to follow Him. And following Him does not mean always getting healed. It doesn't mean always having health and wealth. For a matter of fact, much of His call is for His followers to suffer with Him. And I believe he knew that if too many people heard about healings like this, they would be signing up to follow him, but on false conditions. They would want to follow him because he brings health and wealth. And he does bring great blessing. And he does heal. And there's prosperity that he does bring. But he also brings sickness and even poverty at times. And he brings suffering at times. And so he wanted to make sure people were following him for the right reasons. And we see in Scripture that he actually refuses to be recruited by the crowds for what they wanted. He refuses to be a king who would bring them health and wealth. At least for this time. God calls us to follow Him. He calls us to follow Him and to look to Him as our healer, but to look to Him as much more. As our God. As our life as our treasure and as the one who will ultimately bring us healing on the final day. But we live in an era, a time between two worlds. We live in a time when Christ has come and initiated His kingdom and He pours out blessing and there are healings and we've seen them in our midst and we're going to continue to see them and we're going to continue to ask God to heal people and to bless them and we're going to continue to seek to minister healing to the crowd. But not everyone gets healed. For a matter of fact, unless the Lord returns, none of us get healed. We all will die physically. So any healing physically is a good thing, but it's temporary. It's a true healing that He brings that's better than the physical healing. It's the relational healing, the spiritual healing with Him. For the core of Jesus' mission is not to heal the sick, though that's part of it. And the core of our mission is not to heal the sick, though that's part of it. The core of His mission is to bring true healing to people because we are all sick with sin. God's made everything good and He's made us to have a relationship with Him and yet we have rebelled against Him and we live in this place of rebellion against God. It's in us. It's ingrained in us. And he knew that we needed much more than physical healing. And so he went to the cross. And he took our sins, your sins, on himself. For the Bible says the wages of sin is death. God's holy and just and good. And he cannot sweep it under the rug. He's promised to punish sin as a holy and just God. And so Christ came and took sin on himself. And was punished in your place. And in my place. So that we could be forgiven. And we can be cleansed of our sin and one day be fully healed, having new bodies, sinless bodies with Him. So He came for this above all other things.
to bring true healing. And if, if you're here this morning and you know you're a sinner, come to Him. Come to Him as your healer, as your Savior who forgives you of your sin, who gives you new life. Come to Him like the woman did to His feet saying, I'm desperate. I need help. I've messed up my life. I'm doing things I know I shouldn't do. I need help. I need someone to save me from my sin, to rescue me. I need a Lord to follow. Come like Jairus and this woman came and He will, he will gladly respond. Grant you forgiveness and new life in Him. What about, what else should we do with this story, with what it teaches us? I think there are a few things. If the band could come up as we close. A few things that we, I think, are to do with this. Certainly, above all else, come to the Savior as desperate ones. Not fearing, but believing. Do not fear. Only believe. We are to come with our sicknesses and ask God to heal. We are to make it a regular practice to pray for the sick. If you are sick, matter of fact, James tells you to call the elders of the church to be prayed for. We're to do that. We're to be faithful in that. We're not to say, well, God just uses sickness for, to teach me more Christ-likeness. Yes, He does, but He also tells you to be prayed for. So we're going to pray for sick folks as a church. We're going to ask. I think that the mode we see in Scripture is we ask and we ask and we ask until God says no. And then we stop asking. But we keep on asking. But while we ask, we recognize that God wisely uses sickness to accomplish great purposes. God is a God who uses suffering and calls His people to suffering. To learn more of Him and the preciousness of Christ and the Gospel even in suffering. So we are to embrace suffering and sickness as well. And recognize its good effect in us personally and for those around us. Carson says, Christians will take refuge from their questions about suffering not in bitterness, self-pity, resentment against God or trite cliches and religious cant, but in endurance, perseverance, and faith in the God who has suffered and who has fought with evil and triumphed and whose power and goodness ensure that faith Resting in Him is never finally disappointed. Whether it's today or that day, your faith will not be disappointed. So we're to trust God and for His cure. And I believe God's calling us in this story to be ministers like Christ. For He has ascended, He's ruling, and He sent His Spirit. And we now are the body of Christ. We are now to minister as He did in the story. And like we've talked about, there are those suffering from sudden sudden trials and chronic trials. And we are to be His hands and feet. He wants to use you. He wants to use me to minister in the same way to them. To reach out to them. So what I'd like to do before we close in worship, I want to just take a minute and I'd like us just to silently Think and pray. Because I know there's someone in your life, it may be even you, or close, who is in desperate need like Jairus or the woman. And I believe He wants to use you to minister to them in some way. So let's just take a minute quietly to think of that person and to pray for that person. And ask the Lord, Lord, what can I do to be like you, to be your hands and feet and your mouthpiece of truth in their life? Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your words to Jairus and to us. Do not fear. Only believe. Lord, that You are worthy of our faith. 
And Lord, we bring our friends and our family and our own situations before You, God. We ask You, we implore You, Lord, would You touch these lives? Would You bring healing? Would You bring salvation to these people, our friends, our loved ones? Lord, would You use us? Lord, would You make us a church and a people who are used by You to minister even as You did? To minister Your truth and Your love and healing where You so empower and lead, God. We want to engage the crowd, O God. We want to minister. Send us out into the crowd. Those around us. Those who are near us and those who are far even, Lord. That we might minister in Your name. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for what You did in this woman's life and in Jairus' daughter and what You are doing in us and through us. Be greatly glorified in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in worship.